your Bibles, Psalm 119. Psalm 119, and we'll be reading verses 65 to 72 this morning. Psalm 119, and we will pick up in verse 65 this morning. There the word of Christ says this. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The arrogant have forged a lie against me. With all my heart, I will observe your precepts. Their heart is covered with fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, asking for you to teach us Lord, teach us good discernment and knowledge. Lord, the knowledge that comes from your word. Lord, the knowledge of you that we find through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we pray that today you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Lord, that you would make us to understand the pathway of your commandments. And that, Lord, you would cause us to walk in your ways. Lord, give us understanding Lord, lead us and guide us into your will, and it is in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Well, I've heard it said recently that the more God's law tells us what and how to think, the more we dislike God's law. Now, let me repeat that again. It was said recently by someone, I don't agree with this statement, but I'm going to say it again. The more God's law tells us uh, what and how to think, the more we dislike God's law. Now, I ask you, we've been teaching through Psalm 119, and we've gone through the first 64 verses uh, up to this point. Does this statement, does this attitude comport with the attitude, with the perspective of the prophet David in Psalm 119? Let me remind you of some verses that we have seen, and certainly we could read from the beginning to the end, and all of it would show that this is not the right attitude, but notice Psalm 119, verse 5. It says, Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. Also, verse 7, I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. Verse 11, your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 14, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. Verse 16, I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Verse 18, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Verse 24, your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. Verse 29, remove the false way from me and graciously grant me your law. Verse 31, I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Do not let me be put to shame. Verse 35, make me walk in the path of your commandments for I delight in it. Verse 40, Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. Verse 45, And I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. Verse 47, 
I shall delight in your commandments, which I love. I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Verse 54, your statutes are my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. Verse 56, this has become mine, that I observe your precepts. And then verse 60, I hastened and did not delay to keep your commandments. Now, do these verses, in any of the verses of Psalm 119, give any indication, right? Even the slightest hint that the prophet David has disdain for the law of God. That the more he reads the law of God, the more he hates it, the more he detests it, the more it heaps great burdens upon him. Absolutely not. He is speaking constantly of his delight in the law of the Lord, of how it benefits him, of how it brings him liberty. He says twice in verses 47 and 48, I love your law, right? He loves the law of God. And we will see this as we come up on Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law, he says. It is my meditation all the day. Now, this is because he's writing from the perspective of a believer, of a child of God, of one who has been redeemed, who has a new nature, who has been filled with the Holy Spirit of God, one who has received the grace of God. And the grace of God that delivered him from the penalty of sin is the same grace of God that is at work in his life, giving him the ability to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. The grace of God teaches us to love the law of God, to obey the law of God, to love the word of God, not for our salvation, but as the fruit of our salvation, right? As the manifestation of the salvation that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. It says in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, it says, The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Right? The law of God gives us this knowledge. It defines for us what is ungodliness, what is worldly desires. It teaches us how to live sensibly, righteously, godly in the present age. We have to have instruction, do we not? We have to know the will of God, do we not? Well, where do we go to learn the will of God? It is the word of God that teaches us the will of God. And the slaves of Christ, they want more than anything else to please their master. They want to obey him. They want to please him. Of course, not perfectly, right? Because we still are battling with the flesh. But this is what we desire is to do the will of our master. And it is the law of God that teaches us the good will of our master. And so the faithful, wise slave loves the law of God. He delights in it. He clings to it. He meditates on it. He doesn't dislike it, right? He doesn't hate it. He doesn't chafe against it. He doesn't have detestation for the word of God, right? That doesn't come from the spirit, but that comes from the flesh. And we must crucify the flesh along with its desires. The world, the flesh, and the devil, they hate the law of God. The more the law of God tells them what to do, the more that they dislike it, but not the redeemed. Amen. The redeemed love the law of God, and they want to know the will of God. So let's go to Psalm 119, and we'll pick up in verse 65 this morning. Verse 65 says, You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Here, the prophet David recognizes the blessings of God upon his life, that God has been good to him. God has dwelt well, dealt well with him. 
even though he is a lowly slave before the Lord. The Lord is not a cruel, tyrannical, harsh master, but he is one who treats his subjects, he treats his slaves well by pouring out his goodness upon them. Isn't this the case? Isn't this our own testimony as well? Our own experience as well? That God is good to his people? Right? Consider that in our natural state, we are children of the devil. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And who is the one who gave us life? Who is the one who died for us? Who is the one who brought us out from the grave and have given us life and seated us in heavenly places? It was the Lord who did this. He is the one who has converted us. He is the one who transformed us from the dominion of darkness into the dominion, into the kingdom of light. He transformed us from being children of the devil to being children of God without any help or any assistance from us. 100% dependent upon the goodness and the grace of God. He's the one who did it, not us. So has God dealt well with us in terms of redemption? Absolutely, 100%. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, it tells us such, what we were like in our former state, and now what we are like in the state of grace, in the state of redemption. In all of this, God did for us. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says, You are dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, too, we all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them." Does that not testify to us that God has dealt well with his servants, with his slaves? Yes, he's given us life from the dead. He has raised us up. Also, isn't it true as well, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, that every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, God has blessed us with these things in Christ Jesus. Every spiritual blessing that we now enjoy, and every blessing that we will enjoy for all eternity has come to us from God. God has given it to us. He has blessed us with these things. We did not buy them from God. We did not attain them ourselves, but God has graciously given these things to us. Also, doesn't God provide all of our physical needs? Isn't he the one who gave to us life, breath, and all things, everything needful for this life? All the blessings that we enjoy related to this present life also come to us from God. And then in verse 65, in terms of the prophet David, God bestowed upon him honor. He gave to him notoriety in that he was the first righteous king to rule in Israel. 
And then in addition to that, God gave to David a spiritual promise that the Christ would come into the world through him, that he would be an ancestor of Jesus Christ. So does the prophet David have many proofs, many reasons to exclaim that God has dealt well with him? Absolutely. And the same with us as well. He has no reason to question or doubt the goodness of God toward him. And this is our experience as well. We have many reasons to be firmly and fully convinced of God's goodness to his people that just as he did with David, so he has done with us. He dealt well with David. He is also dealing well with us. And this is as it says in Romans 15 verse 4. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. What was written of David was written for us, for our benefit, not merely for his benefit, not merely for the benefit of those generations close to him, but for our benefit as well, so that we might have encouragement, so that we might have perseverance as well, so that we also would be fully convinced that God is good, that God is good and he has dealt well with us. He does good to his servants. We must be convinced of this truth. We cannot doubt it. We cannot doubt the goodness of God. God's goodness must be central to our thinking about God. Otherwise, we are going to have doubts. We're going to have evil suspicions concerning his word and concerning his providential care for us. If we begin to doubt the goodness of God, if we begin to question whether or not God is good or evil, does he really know what he's doing? Does he really have my best interest in mind? Is living according to the word of God going to produce my good and happiness? Right? Is the pathway of God's commands, is that really the pathway of blessing? Or are there other pathways? Right? Are there better ways to live and to walk? Right? When these questions come into our mind, essentially what we are doing is doubting the wisdom of God and we're doubting the goodness of God toward his servants. Isn't this a part of what happened in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7? The very first sin. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, the serpent, he attacked the word of God, but the means to attacking the word of God was impugning the nature of God, causing them to doubt the goodness of God and the goodness of God's word that was given to them. Notice Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 to 7. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. There the serpent attacked the very goodness of God, right? Though God is good 
And though the commandment that God gave to the man and the woman was a good commandment, right? It wasn't to ruin them or to destroy them. The commandment was to protect them, right? It was for their benefit, for their blessing. The serpent deceived the woman by his cunning and convinced her that God was not good and that the commandment that God gave to them wasn't for their benefit either. The commandment was actually depriving them. God was withholding from them good things, restricting them and withholding them. And every time we are tempted to sin, this issue is on the table. Is God good and are his commandments good for me? David was convinced of the goodness of God, that God had dealt well with his servant, that he could trust God. He should not trust his own wisdom. He should not trust the wisdom of this world, but rather he should trust the wisdom of God because he knows that God is a good God and whatever God commands of him is going to be for his benefit. And this is the mindset we must have as well. As it says in Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God causes all things to work together for good, right? Not for all men, but for his servants, for his people, for those who love God, right? And why do we love God? Because he first loved us. He loves us and then we love him and then he causes all things to work together for our good. And this is because God is himself a good God, and God gives good things to his servants. We must believe this in two regards. First, in regards to the commandments of God. We must see that God's commandments are revealing to us the pathway of goodness, right? The pathway of blessing. Whatever God commands for us in regards to how we are to live, it is always for our good and never for our evil. And if we think it is evil for us, that's not coming from the spirit, it's coming from the flesh, and we have to reject it. Now, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they don't believe this. They believe the commandments of God are a great burden that restricts them, that keeps them from happiness, from joy, from blessing, because they want to live in sin, and they think that the pathway of sin is the pathway of blessing, but the Bible is telling us the opposite. It's telling us the pathway of sin is the pathway of misery, Ruin, it leads to destruction, right? It leads to eternal ruin and destruction. But the pathway of the word of God, right? The highway of holiness, that is the place of blessing. That is where the goodness of God is found. So we must be convinced that if our life conforms to the word of God, it will only and always promote our goodness. It will be for our good and for our blessing. So we must believe in the goodness of God in regards to his commandments. And then also we must believe in his goodness in regards to his providence, in regards to the providential care that he has for his people. Whatever circumstances God brings into our lives by way of his providential care is for our good, whether that be health or sickness, whether that be riches or poverty, whether that be peace or strife, right, singleness or marriage, children or barrenness, whether we have a believing spouse or whether we have an unbelieving spouse, believing children or unbelieving children, whatever situation, whatever circumstance we face in life, whatever we receive according to the providence of God, all of it ultimately will work out for our good, 
even those things that in the moment are very difficult and very hard. And we have to be convinced of this. Do we trust the goodness of God? Do we trust that God knows how to care for us? Or do we know better how to care for ourselves than what God does? Do we know better how to arrange our own lives and to produce our own sanctification better than God? No. Can we say with the prophet, you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word? This we must say. Verse 66, Psalm 119, verse 66. Teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe your commandments. Because he believes in the goodness of God, then he wants God to teach him. You teach me, God. You are the good God. You are the God of all wisdom. So you teach me wisdom and give me discernment and give me knowledge according to your commandments. He understands that God's commandments are for his good. They're not to ruin him. They're not to destroy him. They are to help him, to be a benefit to him in this life so that he might have good discernment and knowledge of the will of God. Now, many people, they have discernment. They have knowledge concerning many things that pertain to this present life. They can tell you the best course of action for various things that pertain to this present world. What is the best way to handle this or that situation in life? And many of those things are good and fine, and we need them and are necessary for this present world. But how many people out there are there who want discernment on spiritual matters? How many people want good discernment in terms of spiritual eternal issues, in terms of morality, in terms of making a distinction between good and evil, between truth and error? Who out there is asking God to teach them good discernment and knowledge as it relates to the eternal spiritual matters of life? Very, very few people. Very few have this approach. Most people think it doesn't matter. We can believe whatever we want. It doesn't matter if it's good or bad because God loves us all and we're all going to make it to heaven. This is what, generally speaking, people believe. But that's not the, the attitude of the prophet. He wants good discernment, not bad discernment. He wants true knowledge, not false knowledge. He wants to know the difference between good and evil, between truth and error. And it is a shame that many people, many unbelievers, can spend so much time and effort to gain discernment and knowledge for the things of this world, who can master, right, who can have mastery over certain topics, who can communicate and relate their knowledge of those things to others with precision and accuracy, and yet most people who claim to be Christians will not with the same studiousness seek after discernment and knowledge from God's word. They do not master the things of God, and they cannot communicate with any accuracy, with any precision, the things of God. Why should the world be more zealous for the things of this world than the children of God are for the things of God? Why should they seek discernment for this life and we not seek discernment for the life to come? We need to have the attitude of the prophet to ask God to teach us. Teach us, Lord, good discernment and knowledge from your word. That the Spirit of God would use the word of God to give these virtues to us. Isn't it good to have discernment? To be a man of discernment? Isn't it good to have knowledge? To be someone who possesses knowledge? These are not evil things. These are good things. This should be a badge of honor that the Christian wears, to be a man of discernment or to be a man of knowledge. It says such in Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 to 14. 
Hebrews 5, verse 11. Hebrews 5.11 says, Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. That's the discernment he's talking about in Psalm 119.66. The discernment that we receive when we are trained to make a distinction between good and evil. We need this discernment, otherwise we're going to be susceptible to false teachers. We're going to be susceptible to the lies of this world, to the lies of Satan. We're going to think, oh, this is, a good, this is a good ideology. This is a good philosophy. This is a fine way of thinking about this or that. Or this is a fine way of living in this or that situation. But if the discernment isn't coming from the word of God, we're not going to be able to see that this thing that people are telling me is filled with poison. It's deadly poison. It's going to lead to my ruin and to my destruction. I need discernment. And where does the discernment come from? Those who are practiced in the word of righteousness, the word of God. This is where our spiritual discernment comes from, and we need God to teach us from his word to give us this. Also, we need knowledge. We need knowledge. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It says in John 17, verse 3, we cannot have eternal life without the knowledge of God. And not any knowledge of God, not false knowledge of God, true knowledge, the true knowledge of God that comes from God's holy word. Verse 67, Psalm 119, 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. How convinced is the prophet of the goodness of God? Even in affliction, even in affliction, he recognizes the goodness of God. He's not seeing the goodness of God only when he has blessing. Right, only when he's fat and happy and plenty of riches. Even in his afflictions, he's able to see, to recognize the goodness of God to him. All of God's ordinances, his righteous judgments, whatever God determines for our life is for our goods. Right? God's judgments are altogether righteous and just in the affliction as well. Right, Even the afflictions he sees... On his people, God is still just and righteous and good. Psalm 94. Psalm 94, verse 12. Psalm 94, 12. says, Blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. There, he says, the man that God chastens, the man that God disciplines is a blessed man because God is teaching him the way of righteousness. He's teaching him from his law. Also in Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 to 13, it teaches us here about the necessity of discipline, of discipline from the Lord and how it is for our good. Hebrews 12, verse 4. 
It says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as his sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we might not much uh, rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are, fe are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. There, God disciplines his sons, right? Do not regard it lightly, but rather we have to see that this is a natural part of the Christian life that God disciplines his children just as we parents discipline our children for a short time when in their infancy, in their childhood, while they're in the home, we discipline them in order to prepare them for adulthood, right? In order to prepare them for what they will be later in life. So God also disciplines us as he sees fit according to his own will for our benefit so that we might share in his holiness, right? These passages clearly teach that afflictions, hardships, sufferings, persecutions, tribulations, right? Whatever you want to call them, right? Whenever these things happen to us, they are for our good. It's for our benefit. God is bringing these upon us. Not that they're not sorrowful. He says that they're sorrowful. They are difficult. They are a harsh, fiery trial, but they are ultimately for our good. Hardships humble us. They teach us to depend and rely solely upon the Lord. They test us to see if we serve God, if we serve God only for his material blessings, or do we serve God for the spiritual? Do we serve him because we love him? They are brought upon us for these reasons. First, to punish us from sin, right? To drive sin away from us. This is the case in Psalm 119, verse 67. He says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. He was straying from the pathway of God's commandments. But then what brought him back to it? The affliction. The affliction brought him back to the proper way. It was the discipline used by God to drive the sin out of his life. And this is what we need. Also, we need discipline to test us in order to train us more in righteousness. To teach us self-control. To teach us patience. To teach us to live a godly life to teach us to depend upon the Lord, to humble us, right, to give to us endurance. These are all traits we need in the Christian life, and afflictions, right, cause us to increase in all of these Christian virtues. And so they are good for us. It is for our benefit that God disciplines and chastens his sons. This is as it says in Romans 5, verses 1 to 5. Romans 5, verse 1. 
says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit given to us. There, tribulations, he says, bring about perseverance. Perseverance brings about proven character. Proven character brings about hope. It gives us hope. It convinces us that, yes, we are children of God. Yes, we do have true faith because we are enduring through the trial, through the suffering, right? It is the endurance of the suffering that gives us hope that our faith is true, legitimate faith and that we are indeed children of God and we will enter into the joy of our master. David had many afflictions in his life given to him by God for his good. And this will be the case with all of God's children. Verse 68, Psalm 119, 68. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Here, this is the key to this whole passage. These, true food, tr- these truths must be fixed in our minds. We must be fully convinced of these two things. God is good and God does good. If we live according to these truths, then we will be grateful, we will be humble, and we will trust in God. When we fail, is because we think that God is evil and that God does not know what he's doing. That the world... And my life is in chaos. It is out of control. God is is aloof. He doesn't know what he's doing. And I am subject to many evils and much misery, either because God is himself an evil God, or God is a good God. He's just impotent. And he can't do anything. And he cannot bring about good for his people. When we question the goodness of God and his good ways in the world, Then instead of being grateful to God and his many blessings, we'll be like the wilderness generation who grumbled and murmured and complained constantly against God. Then instead of being humble before God, we will in pride believe that we are better determiners of goodness than God. We will think that we know how to better arrange our own life and we know how to better arrange the world than God does. There would be more goodness in the world if I was in charge. If I was the one sitting on the throne, this is what people believe. Instead of trusting in God's ways, we will doubt God and trust our own wisdom to determine what is good and right. So we must be convinced and we must believe and we must live according to these truths. God is good and God does good. Then instead of grumbling against God, instead of doubting God, instead of thinking our wisdom is superior to God, then we will with humility, with faith, with a grateful heart, ask God to be the one to teach us his statutes. When we are fully convinced that God's ways are better than our own ways, that God's ways are better than the ways of this world, and that we need God to teach us his statutes. Psalm 119.69, the arrogant have forged a lie against me. With all my heart I observe your precepts. Here, one of the afflictions that we will face in this life. The arrogant, he calls them, the arrogant have risen up against him. Arrogant because they trust in their own goodness. They trust in their own wisdom instead of trusting in the wisdom and goodness of God. This is the arrogance of sinful men. 
They reject the word of God. They reject the wisdom of God and replace it with their own wisdom, right? With what they think is best and what they think is right. They believe that they know better how to determine goodness, how to determine righteousness, how to tell men to live than God does. They are better judges of truth, of righteousness, of justice, of wisdom than God. This is what arrogant people believe. There's many arrogant people out there. They're all over the place. And when they see the righteous man who believes in the goodness of God, who's submitting his life to the word of God, they cannot stand to have someone contradict them. They cannot stand to have someone living in contrast and in contradiction to the way that they live. To have a testimony of a righteous life and the righteous words of the godly stand against them. So what do they have to do? They have to smear mud all over the godly man. They've got to bring him down. They've got to cut him down. Bring him down a couple of notches. They must make the godly man out to be an evil man. But they cannot do this based upon facts and reality because the life of the righteous testify to the goodness of God and to the conversion, their transformation, their own godly life. So what do they have to do? He tells us they forge lies. They go and they forge lies against the righteous man. They have to say something about the man of God that isn't true in order to justify their own sin and to convince everyone else that this righteous man isn't really a righteous man. Actually, he's a very evil man. And God isn't on his side. God's on my side against him. Isn't this what happened to David? Didn't this happen to our Lord Jesus Christ? They couldn't bring any charges against him. Even Pilate, who we know was a perverse man, even Pilate knew and recognized that this man had done no wrong, that he was an innocent man. He done, had done nothing worthy of death. And what did they do? They had nothing by which to trap him. They had no legitimate uh, thing to bring against Christ. So they just make stuff up. They made up their own lives. This happens to the holy apostles all throughout the book of Acts. Didn't this happen to Stephen, that first martyr there in Acts chapter 6? They had nothing by which to condemn him. So they just made stuff up. Made it up. They forged a lie against him. Notice in Acts chapter 6. This is the way that they will behave, the wicked. They have no fear of God. And they love sin. And they love lies. All men are liars, the word of God says. The heart of man is desperately wicked. It is sick. Acts chapter 6 verse 8. And Stephen full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Notice that. They can't deal with him, right? They can't contradict him. They can't win an argument fair and square. They can't do it. So what do they have to do? They have to come up with lies. Then they secretly induced men, saying, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. In fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. 
This is what he was, a man full of power, of grace, of truth. He had the face of an angel, and yet still they forged lies against him, and they unjustly put him to death. This is what they will do to the righteous. Well, when it happens, how do we respond? Notice what he says. With all my heart, I observe your precepts. They may lie about me, but I'm going to obey God. I'm going to obey God. I'm not going to let the lies of the arrogant distract me detract me from obeying God with all my heart. I'm not going to be so perplexed when this happens to me that I abandon and forsake God. No. He says, I'm going to keep serving God. I'm going to keep obeying God, even when the arrogant smear me with lies. Psalm 119, verse 70. Why do they do this? Their heart is covered with fat, but I delight in your law. Their heart, he says, the heart of the arrogant, the heart of the wicked is, they got a fat heart, right? Not in a good way. That it's covered with fat, meaning they are insensitive to the things of God. They have no feeling. They have no desire. They have no delight for what is good and true and right because their heart is covered with fat and they have no desire for the things of God. This is as it says in Psalm 78. In Psalm 78 Verses 36 and 37. Psalm 78, 36 says, But they deceived him with their mouth and lied to him with their tongue. For their heart was not steadfast toward him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. Right? For their heart to be covered with fat means that their heart is not steadfast towards God. They have a rebellious, evil heart because they are consumed with this present world. They love this world and the things of this world. They love their pleasures, they love their goods, they love their riches, they love their worldly honor, and they have no care and no concern about what truly matters. They have no care for the things of God. They have so much fat around their heart that they're completely dead to their greatest problem, the coming judgment of God upon them, where God is going to destroy them, and they don't even look into those things. They don't care one ounce about these things. Jeremiah chapter 5. This was the situation in Jeremiah's day. And notice as well, in these cases, David is a man of God, and he's not living in Assyria or Babylon or Egypt. Where is he living at? He's living in Israel. Stephen was a man of God. And who were the ones that came against him? It was Jews who had access to the word of God, who should know better. Jeremiah is a man of God, a prophet of God. And who is he preaching to? He's not preaching to foreigners. He's preaching to Israelites, those who claim to be children of God. They claim to know God. They claim to follow God, but not really. They don't do it in truth and in right. And this will be the case in our own day as well that there will be many people who claim to be Christians, but their heart is covered with fat, and they have no desire for the things of God, truly. They have a false desire. They have zeal, but not according to knowledge. Jeremiah 5, verse 20. Declare this in the house of Jacob, and proclaim it in Judah, saying, Now hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble in my presence? For I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea, an eternal decree, so that it cannot cross over it. 
Though the waves toss, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot cross over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and departed. They do not say in their heart, Let us now fear the Lord our God, who gives rain in its season, both the autumn rain and the spring rain, who keeps us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these away, and your sins have withheld good from you. The wicked men are found among my people. They watch like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch men like a cage full of birds, so their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and rich. They are fat. They are sleek. They also excel in deeds of wickedness. They do not plead the cause, the cause of the orphan, that they may prosper, and they do not defend the rights of the poor. Shall I not punish these people, declares the Lord? On a nation such as this, shall I not avenge myself? An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, the priests rule on their own authority, and my people love it so. But what will you do at the end of it? There it is. Right? Even the sea knows its boundaries, but they don't know their boundaries. They have no boundaries, no restraint to their sin because they love their sin more than they love God. The prophet David is not like this. His heart is right before God. He delights in the law of God, not in the abundance of riches, not in the things of this world. Though he was a very wealthy man in terms of worldly wealth, David wasn't living for riches. His heart was not set on worldly riches. His heart was set on God and love for the word of the Lord. He loved the word of God. As it says in Jeremiah 15, 16, Your words were found and I ate them, and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Psalm 119, verse 71 says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. How many people have this perspective about afflictions? Many people grumble. They grumble and complain under the hand of discipline, but not the prophet. He recognizes the goodness of God in affliction. He says, it was good for me that I was afflicted because through the affliction, God taught him his statutes. This is as we read earlier from Hebrews chapter four. Yes, in the moment, discipline doesn't seem joyful, but sorrowful. But afterwards... Right? For those who are trained by it, it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Then there is joy, there is gladness, and that's what the prophet is saying here. He says, it was good for me that I was afflicted because through the affliction, he learned the statutes of God. And it was a benefit to him. And now he recognizes that, yes, this was good. Yes, I'm glad that God did this to me because look at what it brought about. This would be the same as it was with Joseph, right? With Joseph. Right? Do you think Joseph was smiling, that he was laughing, jovial, having a wonderful time right? when his brothers were betraying him, when they threw him in a pit, when they sold him into slavery? Do you think he was joyful and glad whenever Potiphar's wife was lying about him and when he was thrown in prison? Do you think he was saying, you know, this is what I always dreamed for my life. I've always dreamed of being a slave, right? I've always looked forward to being thrown into prison unjustly, and this is so wonderful. Of course not. Those were harsh circumstances, fiery trials, afflictions that would have been the cause of much sorrow and hardship for Joseph. But later in his life, when God brought him through all of that, was he able to see the goodness of God in those things? 
Absolutely, right? You meant it for evil, he says in Genesis 50:20 to his brothers. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God brought good out of your evil. So in the end, it was a benefit to him. That's the same as what the prophet David is saying here. He has been afflicted by God, and now after the sorrow, he sees the good fruit that God produced out of it. The discipline taught him more clearly and accurately the statutes of God, with the result of sanctification, more righteousness, more faith, right? This is what's happening in in his life. So he's grateful for the affliction because it brought about such a good result. And this is the way that we should be as well, right? I was glad. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Verse 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. I feel like we keep saying this over and over. Who thinks like this, right? Who thinks like this today? Where are the people who have this perspective? Where are the Christians who think and live in this way? Very few people believe this. They might say it, but their actions betray them. If you set before most people, if you made them choose for the rest of their life, you can either have a Bible or you can have thousands of pieces of gold and silver. How many men would choose a Bible over the gold and silver? What if? What if we went door to door in every house in Shawnee and told the people, we have words of life. We have the knowledge of salvation. We have the law of the Lord. We can teach you the way of salvation. We can teach you the will of God. We can teach you how to avoid the day of judgment. And all you have to do is show up, come this Sunday at 1030, and we will teach you the law that comes from the mouth of God. How many people will show up? About this many, maybe, right? Maybe one or two more, right? Hardly anyone would show up. But what if we went door to door and told the people, we've buried thousands of pieces of gold in the lawn behind the building. And the first hundred people to show up, you will receive a shovel. And you can go and dig, and whatever you find, whatever gold that you find, you can keep. How many people do you think would come then? The whole city of Shawnee would show up, right? They would all come. This is what's happening in the churches today. It may not be gold and silver. Just replace the gold and silver with pizza, with programs, with activities, with fun, with all the different trappings and the things of this world. That's what they're peddling to the people, and this is why the people come. Why would people come for gold but not the Word of God? Because they don't believe Psalm 119, verse 72. They do not believe this truth. The law of God's mouth is of no value to them, but gold and silver is of great value to them. The people of this world, they want worldly riches. They want the luxuries, the pleasures, the comforts that the riches of this world will provide for them. Riches are of great value, but the word of God, they see no value in it because it pertains to the life to come. Right? Not merely to the life to come. It benefits us even now in this life. But the riches offered in the Word of God have to do with eternal riches, with spiritual riches, with salvation. But is this the case with the prophet David? What would he rather have? He says this. He tells us by the Spirit. He loves God's Word more than thousands of gold and silver pieces. This is how we must be. We cannot be consumed with the accumulation of wealth. Loving God and seeking His will is more valuable. It is greater than all of the riches of this world. 
Then we will store up riches in heaven. Eternal riches that thieves cannot steal, right? That a moth cannot destroy, that rust cannot touch. It says in Matthew 16, 26, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Will they give a piece of gold in exchange for their soul? How about a thousand pieces of gold and silver? Would you trade your immortal soul for thousands of gold and silver pieces? Should a piece of gold be the difference between going to heaven and going to hell? Right? How foolish! Yet in our day, this is the case. And sadly, in our day, we're not even dealing with gold and silver. We're dealing with paper that in the Joe Biden economy is worthless, right? And it's becoming more and more worthless each and every day. Yet there are many who will gladly part with their soul for the sake of money. Didn't Achan do this in Joshua chapter 7? Achan exchanged his soul for a beautiful mantle, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold. 2 Kings chapter 5, Gehazi exchanged his soul for two talents of silver and two changes of clothes. Judas Iscariot exchanged his soul for 30 pieces of silver. The rich man of Luke 16 exchanged his soul for his wealth and sumptuous living. The rich young ruler exchanged his soul because he was very rich. The rich fool exchanged his for his barns full of his goods and produce. May this not be the case with us. May we love the law of the mouth of God more than thousands of pieces, than millions of pieces, than billions of pieces of gold and silver. May this be what we love more than anything else because our mind is not consumed and fixated with this present world, but our mind is fixed on the world to come, on the eternal life that is waiting that God has in store for his people. So may we press on for the upward price, right? For the eternal riches, that's the riches that we want. And be content with what God gives to us in this present life. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, confessing and recognizing, Lord, that you are a good God, Lord, that you do good, and that, Lord, we are an example of that. Lord, we are a testimony. Lord, it is our own experience that these truths, Lord, they resonate in our own life. Lord, you have dealt well with your servants. Lord, you are the one who has given to us life, both our physical life, but Lord, also our spiritual life. Lord, you are our creator and you are our redeemer. And you are the one who is sanctifying us even now. And you are the one who will glorify us on the day of Christ. You are a good God. And Lord, you always do what is good for your people. Father, we pray that you would give us, Lord, an even greater faith in these truths. Lord, that we would never doubt them. Lord, even when we are going through a fiery trial, Lord, that it would never enter into our mind that, Lord, you are not good and that you do not have what is best for us. But Lord, may we always be convinced of this and may we live accordingly. Lord, submitting our life to your will. Lord, knowing that if you are good and do good, then, Lord, the, 
the best pathway for us. Lord, the life of blessing is to conform our life, Lord, as closely as we can to your life, Lord, to your word, and to those things that you call us to do. Lord, we pray that we would love the law of your mouth more than thousands of pieces of gold and silver. Lord, that you would give to us an an insatiable desire for the word of Christ. Lord, that it would be our daily bread. Lord, that it would be sweeter to us than honey from the honeycomb. And Lord, more valuable than all the riches in this world. Lord, for it is in your word that your servants find life. Lord, it is here that, Lord, you teach us, Lord, how to make a distinction between good and evil. Lord, how to live a life that is pleasing to you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would teach us, and Lord, that you would grant to us your word, Lord, that we might walk in the pathways of righteousness. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us today, and that, Lord, we are able to gather, Lord, freely here in such a comfortable setting. Lord, to have such access to your word. Lord, to be with your people. Lord, these are all blessings that you give to us. And Lord, we pray that we would be grateful, that we would be humble, and that, Lord, we would trust you more and more each and every day. So, Lord, we thank you for the good that you've given to us. And, Lord, we pray and we ask that you would continue, Lord, to pour out your blessings upon your people. And that, Lord, we would submit our life, Lord, to your care. And it is in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen.